Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter uh, 17. Yay! Another milestone. <laughs> Acts chapter 17. Whoa! We're really on the move. <laughs> we have been studying the book of Acts for some time now. And last week we wrapped up chapter 16, which was about Paul's missionary work in, Ma in the Macedonian city of Philippi. Today we will examine his work in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was located at the intersection of two major Roman roads, one leading from Italy eastward and the other from the Danube to the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica's location and use as a port made it a prominent city. In 168 BC, it became the capital of the second district of Macedonia, and later it was made the capital and major port of the whole Roman province of Macedonia. Paul's missionary work in Thessalonica consists of two incidents, pretty short account. Luke first describes the proclamation of the gospel in the synagogue for three consecutive weeks, resulting in the conversion of Jews and God-fearers and sympathizers among the women of the local elite. The second incident reports on the persecution of Paul and his associates, organized by the Jews of the city who mobilize citizens to cause a disturbance in the city. Several believers are dragged before the city authorities as hosts of the missionaries, and they are accused of preaching revolution and a rival king in defiance of the Roman emperor. Now before diving into our text, which will be verses 1 to 10a, Lord willing, I'd like to pray. And Father, open our hearts and minds now. You are the illuminator. You send the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, to open us to your truth. Without his uh, Attending the word, there is no understanding or any change. And so, Holy Spirit, come and fill this place, and more importantly, fill our hearts. There may be some here that do not have you yet. Lord, I pray they'd come to know you. Work that miracle of salvation, Holy Spirit. Now we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your truth, that we, you would help us to put away with all the distractions of life and uh, the things that have even bothered us this morning trying to get ready and get down here on time. Whatever those things may be, finances, relational issues, help us, Lord, now just to be focused on the Word and to be trained in it, corrected by it, transformed by it, that we would be not mere hearers of the Word, but that we would be doers. We need to apply the Word, not just hear and listen and understand, but do it. And so help us to do these things, Holy Spirit, trust you, and we look forward to what you will do here today, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, 17, 1, 10 to, 1 to 10a is actually what we'll be looking at today, so I'll pick up right there at verse 1. Now when they, speaking of uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, now when they had passed through Am, oh my, I, these words just, you know, it's, what is it, amphibian, is that what it says? Amphipolis, right? Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Paul and his companions left Philippi and they took the route called the Via Ignatia, which went from east to west and vice versa. They went uh, west through Amphipolis and Apollonia and then arrived at Thessalonica, which was about 100 miles away. This is a pretty good distance from Philippi. 100 miles on foot would take probably about a week. On the back of a donkey, probably take half a week. And so this was a, a pretty good distance. As they left Philippi, they took this 100-mile distance and they traveled west over to Thessalonica, passed through a couple other cities. Not sure that they stopped off at those cities and spent much time there. They may have. As I said earlier, the Romans had made the port city of Thessalonica the capital city of Macedonia. Uh, it was much larger, it was a much larger city than Philippi. 
I think a good comparison would be that Thessalonica uh, was about the size of Turlock. And then Philippi was about the size of Keys. And so you had about 60,000 people in one. You had five to 10,000 in the other. So Thessalonica would have been a metropolitan city, if you will. It would have been a larger, more robust, larger economy, more diverse. This was a major city. Now take notice of how Luke wrote, they had passed through. They had passed through. Luke put this here because he was not with them in Thessalonica. He said they had passed through. And Luke had switched back in, at the beginning of 16 and talking about how we had done this and how we had gone here and how we, he had actually joined the missionary group as they went into Macedonia. Well, now he's referring to the group as they. And so now we know that Luke is not with them for this particular moment. He did not leave Philippi to go to Thessalonica. He stayed in Philippi. Makes total sense, right? You just planted a new church there. There's a lot of persecution and things happening in the community. Remember Paul and Silas had gotten locked up in jail, an earthquake. They got out, preached the gospel, these sorts of things. Pretty, pretty tough situation. And so once the church was established, or at least in the beginning state of infancy of being uh, established, they left Luke behind who could work with these new Philippian believers and help to establish this church and to begin to teach them to obey all that Christ had commanded and so on and so forth. And so he is not with them here in Thessalonica. He actually stayed back in Philippi to build and to work with the new believers. And there was just a small little band of them there. Thessalonica actually featured something that Philippi didn't have. Synagogues. There were quite a few Jews in the city of Thessalonica, unlike that of Philippi, where there were hardly any. Remember, you had to have two or ten, actually, Jewish heads of households to be able to form a synagogue. They hardly had any Jews in that Greco-Roman city of Philippi. But over here, we see immediately in the text that they went, uh, it says that there was a Jew uh, synagogue of the Jews there, right there in the verse. And so Thessalonica, a larger city, a band of Jews, if you will, there. In fact, the reference here in this first verse isn't to just any synagogue, it's to the chief synagogue. So this synagogue that, that's mentioned here in, in one is the chief one. It would be, uh, what do we call large churches today, mega churches? This would be the mega synagogue, if you will. This is the big main one. It's got the most members and the best musical program, the most programs for growth, I don't know if it had any of those things, but, you know, you just think of our modern-day example, right? You can't really get to know anyone because there's 10 billion people there. So this was the chief synagogue. This was the big one or the primary one. It was the mega. Now look at 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. It says, and Paul went in. And Paul went in. And then it says, as, his, as was his custom... And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And he basically said, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. Paul did what he always did. If there was a synagogue present in a new city that he visited, he'd go in as a visiting rabbi and He'd go right into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he'd proclaim the gospel. That's what he did. If there wasn't a synagogue, he'd go to other places and try to do it. In the Agora shopping center at the riverside in Philippi. But here we see him do what he always did. He was very faithful to his calling to reach the Jew first and we see him doing that here. Luke tells us that he did this for three consecutive weeks. An interesting little detail. We might say that Paul went in and preached a three-week sermon series on the gospel. Came in with Jesus as the messianic theme and then began with that and then began to build a three-week case for that. Proclaiming Christ to these Jews and God-fearers and these leading women. Now, Luke included an important detail about how Paul preached the gospel here. The Jewish scriptures, if you will, the Old Testament, 
shows that it was necessary and imperative that Israel's Messiah uh, would be a, a divine person and suffer and die and be resurrected. These things are clearly illustrated in the Old Testament. Passages like Psalm 16, 8 to 11, and Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53, and Zechariah 12, 10, all testify to these things. The Messiah, Israel's Messiah, would be one who would come. He'd be divine. He would suffer. He would die. He would resurrect. You know, we don't get the, just the gospel, if you will, from the New Testament. The Old Testament proclaims the gospel in multiple ways in many places. And the New Testament is a sort of culmination of even some of those Old Testament ideas and theologies that are there. However, in Jewish thought, the scriptures put forth two different possibilities for Messiah. There is the suffering servant conqueror view, which was widely rejected. And there is the conqueror view, which was mainstream. Within the mainstream view, or conqueror view, if you will, and that's just a little catchphrase to describe, but it's not necessarily a proper theological term, but within that conqueror view, which was popular in Paul's day and is very popular amongst Orthodox Jews today, the Messiah is not incarnate or divine. He's not a spiritual deliverer, in a sense. He doesn't deliver people from sin. The sacrificial system does that. And works and earning do that. He's not betrayed by his own people. That doesn't happen. He's not made to suffer. He's not killed. He's not resurrected. He's not ascended. He's not returning a second time. And guess what? He's not Jesus, period. That was the belief system in Paul's day. That is the belief system today in Orthodox Judaism. Now, Paul took his listeners to the scriptures and then reasoned that Messiah was to be a suffering servant conqueror. He put up that rejected view before these people. And he basically spent three weeks dismantling the mainstream view Via the scriptures. He used the scriptures to lay siege against the common view. You reject these theological truths that are rooted in the Old Testament and totally made clear in the New Testament. Well, I'm here to tell you for three weeks that Jesus is him and he had to come and do all these things. And so on and so forth. He actually pointed to Jesus and declared that he was and is the suffering servant conqueror, that he is the true Messiah of Israel. Paul expounded the scriptures, and then he expounded the life and person and work of Jesus Christ. This is primarily how he reasoned from the scriptures with them. Paul also talked about our condition and depravity and sin and plight and desperate need to be rescued. This is why he explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. A very important caveat in the ministry of the true Messiah. In order for the proper atonement to be made, in order for God's wrath and justice to be satisfied, the Messiah had to suffer in our place die in our place, and overcome Satan and death through rising from the grave. Verse 3 is the gospel in a nutshell, if we will call it that. And so Paul is reasoning from the scripture and he's presenting Christ via the Old Testament scripture as that second view, the suffering conqueror, not just this conqueror, not just this Davidic-only sort of idea where the Messiah will raise up and rise up like King David and sit on that throne and he'll be an earthly man and a person and he'll deliver us and blah, 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 blah. Jesus is totally countering all of that and pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ. Now the question becomes, did Paul somehow challenge his listeners to repent and believe in Jesus Christ? 
You know, that would be the culmination of a three-week sermon, right? You present Jesus, you reason from the scriptures, and point to Jesus and point to Jesus, and then at some point you've got to call for action. That's what a good preacher would do, and we know Paul was a fantastic preacher. So the question becomes, did he somehow challenge them to repent and believe? Absolutely. The evidence is in verse 4. Look at it with me. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Luke wrote that some of Paul's listeners became persuaded through his reasoning, through his preaching, if you will. Persuaded is uh, patho, basically how you'd pronounce it in Greek. And it means to convince someone to believe something and to act on the basis of what is recommended. Patho basically means to take one's advice and then to switch positions or sides. And this is what they did, some of these hearers did, according to verse 4. We can see that Paul exhorted his listeners to repent and believe by how they responded. Repentance is shown by how they turned away from the mainstream view or whatever, whatever else they were clinging to. And faith is shown by how they sided with Paul and Silas, who were what? Believers. Paul exhorted them to turn away from their old beliefs, that's repentance, and to join Silas and himself. That's to be men of faith like them. This is exactly what some of these listeners and hearers did. Luke also lists three types of people who became persuaded, we might say saved, in verse 4. Number one would be some of them. You see it there? Some of them became persuaded. Who is some of them? That is a reference to the Jews. That is reference to the Jewish population, to the Jewish people that were present in the synagogue. Secondly, devout Greeks. They would be the God-fearers. They would be the Greek folks that believed in the Israel's God, Jewish God, if you will, in some sense, and tried to love him and serve him. And then you have the leading women, number three. These might have been wealthy business women or political women or aristocratic women. They were of high standard or high social class. We don't have much more detail about them there. I think it's very, very interesting that he mentions leading women. And very, very cool. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 to 10, we actually read the whole thing, but in chapter 1, verses 2 to 10, which we read a little earlier, Paul provides a glimpse of what this newly formed church body of Jews, devout Greeks, and leading women became like. He listed several things in that passage that show their authenticity of faith their commitment to the gospel, and their boldness for Jesus Christ. And I think this is totally, totally relevant to this sermon and to our day and age because I believe we live in a day, an, a day, an era, if you will, of false conversion and easy believism. And so when we see people getting saved in the New Testament, it's good to go back and look at the epistles or wherever we're studying, to go somewhere else. If we're studying the histor historical account in Acts, go to the epistles and look at to see what these people became like or overcame or what have you. Because we want to see an authentic faith being lived out. Because what do we see in our culture today? People responding but not living out the truth. Not all, but many. Remaining in sin, living an antinomian-style life, and claiming grace. Well, these people were authentic. This mixed background body of believers became a serious force for the kingdom of God. They went on to exemplify the Christian life. And because of this, we can learn from them. Here are seven things about them from 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 to 10. Number one, they became imitators of Paul, Silas, Timothy and the Lord because they received the word in the midst of much affliction in the joy of the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Jesus, Paul, Silas, and Timothy suffered affliction for preaching the gospel. They were attacked and persecuted. Jesus was killed. And so were these other guys later. At least we know that Paul was. 
the Thessalonians experienced the same affliction when they received the gospel. People turned against them. Suffering as the missionaries and Jesus had suffered made them imitators, if you will. And they also had the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of their affliction, just as Jesus and the missionaries had the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of their affliction. Bottom line, the Thessalonians became imitators by how they suffered because of the word, because of the gospel, and how they experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all of that. We might parallel it to us by saying that they received the word and believed it and lived it out and, and you know, didn't have the most high quality life in, social, in their social section. They were immediately persecuted. I always ask myself this, why is it that I don't have people coming at me for being about the truth and all that? It can happen in America. Well, Sometimes I don't think we're really about the truth or we're bold enough to just be as candid as the scriptures are candid. Sometimes we don't imitate these past saints and we don't imitate the Lord and his boldness. Sometimes we do and we pay the price. Praise God for that. Number two, they turned to God from idols. Verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1. They turned to God from idols. Okay, this was a highly idolatrous city. Lots of idols, lots of Greek, Roman gods mixed in, 135, 140 plus gods. Lots of crazy little wooden statues, voodoo dolls, whatever you want to call it. There was some crazy idolatry happening in Thessalonica. And this group of people, these beloved of Christ, turned from their idols. They said, these things don't pay any spiritual dividends. I believe the truth. I turn away from them and I turn to Jesus Christ. They turned to God from idols as many of us have and then we spend our entire Christian life being tantalized by little idols, don't we? The idols of money and sex and all these things. Wonderful parallels to us. We don't think of ourselves as idolaters because we have Jesus. I'll tell you what, whatever you believe you can't live without, that's your idol. That's a fact. I can't live without her. I couldn't go on. Your wife is your idol. I couldn't imagine not having that job. I just wouldn't be able to go on. You see the despair in our culture today, right, over the loss of things and people. It's a real tragedy. I'm not talking about not mourning for loss. We have rampant idolatry in the church. We cling to all of these things. Comfort. That's one of our big ones here, right? Comfort. The American church, comfy. Challenge me to do much. I just walk right out of the service. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be challenged in that way. I don't want to be a missional person in my community and make sacrifices. Comfort's a big idol of ours. There's a zillion of them. Number three, they became servants of the living and true God. Verse 9. They became servants of the living and true God. They left the idols and became servants of the living and true God. Began to love one another. How are you a servant of God? What can you possibly do for him directly? Love your neighbor. Serve at your church. Serve in your community. That's how we serve the living and true God, by loving and serving one another. This group did that. Man, they loved it. Fourth, they became known for their work of faith, which Paul called a labor of love, and their steadfast hope in Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Work of faith, not in an earning sense, but in a service sense. Not trying to get something from God or trying to earn more favor or salvation or any of those things. We're not talking about works righteousness here. We're talking about laboring, having a labor of love. I love God and God commands that I love others and I do that and I serve them. That's my labor of love is serving others. That's how I love God too. Five, they spread the gospel throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Verse eight, these people became missional. Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, uh, to obey all that Christ commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. 
This is what they did. They went out and began to spread the gospel. When you're spreading the gospel, you're making disciples, or at least attempting to. That's God's work. They went out throughout Macedonia, a very large region, Achaia, two Greco-Roman sort of infused areas, and spread the gospel. Hostile territories towards the gospel, mind you. They went out and spread the gospel. They were missional. Number six, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, verse 7. All the other believers, all the other converts, all the other small churches that were planted through this missionary journey, this particular group became an incredible example to all those other brothers and all those other sisters in those churches. This church stood out because of the other things that I've listed they stood out. Number seven, their faith became known everywhere. Verse eight. They were sharing their faith and their belief in Jesus Christ became known to all sorts of people, not just to the churchmen, not just to the brethren, but to others, which in many ways made them a target for the enemy. And also a curiosity to some. And a splendid example to other Christians. This is who this little group of leading women and Jews and God-fearers went to become. Isn't that amazing? That's Paul's encouragement and exhortation. This is who you are, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is who you became. I came to you, proclaimed the gospel, and this is what you became. What an amazing group. Now look at verse 5. Going back to our narrative, Paul's been proclaiming the gospel. People were converted and kind of later on became this body. But before really becoming that body and exemplifying the Christian life, after preaching and many go over to Paul and Silas' side, they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, <laughs> I love that term. Doesn't mean anything close to what I thought. I think of rubble. I just think of like, you know, ground and dirt and rocks and pebbles. No. Took some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and then attacked the house of Jason. What? Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. There were hard-hearted, self-centered Jews in the synagogue that didn't convert but became jealous and enraged when members of their congregation left them to join Paul and Silas. I recently heard a pastor, or heard of a pastor, I didn't physically hear it myself, but somebody told me the story of a pastor who threw a fit over the loss of some of his congregation. People had started going over to another church and and he found out about it, and he basically threw a hissy fit and called them immature, foolish, selfish. He didn't go ahead and go and do what these Jews did in verse 5. He, did, you know, he just called them a few names. He didn't go and form a mob and go and rush some other guy's house. But I, I thought about that as I was writing this sermon, and thinking of my own experience here at RHC when we see so many people come and go and the feelings and emotions that you have and I know the elders have felt that many of you have you get start to get to know someone and then they're 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 gone and you track them down and well I'm just over here now well why whatever kind of messes with you a little bit church can be like a turnstile and I'll tell you what for a pastor and for any elder if you hinge if you hinge your identity and your sense of security on your congregation in the sense that more people come, it makes me feel better about myself, it helps to lift up my self-esteem, it becomes a security issue. If you hinge it on your congregation, you're going to get destroyed because people come and go. If you hinge your security on anything other than the promises of God in Jesus Christ, you're going to have one miserable life. And you know what we see in this text? We see that. We see Orthodox Jews flip out and trip out because people basically left their group, 
to go right into Paul and Silas's group. That's how they interpreted that. They had no concept of what the gospel was. They rejected it. They hated and despised Christ. But their security in many ways was wrapped up in those numbers and in those faces. And you've led them away from us. How dare you do that? And boy, I'll tell you what, man, they came against these guys. Terrible, terrible situation. One of the reasons why people throw a fit or tweak out or go into despair when something is taken away from them or someone is taken away is because they have security issues. A sense of security comes from what they have or what they can attract or what they can produce. And when those things become threatened, their sense of security becomes threatened. If this or that is taken away, and I, then I won't have this or that to hang on to. If so-and-so is taken away, then I won't have so-and-so to hang on to. If people leave my church, I won't have them to hang on to. I won't have them to cling to, to find my identity and my security. People try to protect what they have so that they can protect their sense of security. And this is a pandemic issue in America, which is the most materialistic nation on the face of the earth and that we are constantly taught through 3,000 ads a day it's all about what you can do it's all about how you look it's all about what you have it's all about who you can attract you better have a trophy wife or you're a goofball people pack their bank accounts with money they pack their garages with fancy cars and they they pack their homes with expensive stuff because it makes them feel secure That's a miserable way to live. Money comes and goes, stuff comes and goes, people come and go, churches come and go. Because of this, there is no true and lasting security in any of those things or in any people. If you build your security upon people, your sense of security will only be as sound as people. Now, just think about that. You ever had anyone let you down? Some of you were on your way to church this morning when the spouse let you down. If you build your security upon money, your sense of security will only be as sound as money. Just think about that for a moment. We tend to think, oh, I got a ton of it in the bank. I don't personally. But we tend to think, I got a ton of it in the bank and, and, and I'm going to be okay. Now you just tell that to a bunch of CEOs over the last 10 years how they feel about that. If you build your security on church folks, on membership, and attendance, your sense of security will only be as sound as church folks. Whoa. Membership and attendance. I'm preaching this to myself. Don't get distracted by who comes, Pastor Phil, and who comes and goes. Just be faithful. That's what I constantly tell myself. I'll say this as plainly as I know how. Jesus Christ is the only one who can give us real and lasting security. Jesus himself said this, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on a solid rock, through the rain, uh, though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on the bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and does not obey it is foolish, opposite of wise, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse in a mighty crash. Edward Mote summarized Matthew 7, 24 to 27 in his classic hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on then, close, <laughs> I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but, amen, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Imagine a bouncing ball. <laughs> and what does he mean? He means Jesus is it. Your money can be burned. It's perishable. Your vehicles, they get wrecked, you call Geico. You just can't invest. People come and go, they pass away. They abandon us. I know what that's like. My dad left when I was in junior high. You can't build on people. 
You can't build security on people. You can't build it on what you have or what you can possess. You can't build it on any of those things. If you do, your security is not only threatened, but will be decimated at some point. When trials come, when we suffer loss, when the floodwaters and high winds of life come, they will take and strip your sense of security. And you will become hopeless. But we build upon Christ. When we build upon Christ, we build upon an immovable rock and our security and hope will hold when storms come. Now look at back at verse 5 and take notice of how far some people are willing to go to protect their sense of security, if you will, or their interests. Luke lists four things that the jealous Jews did. Number one, they took some wicked men of the rabble and formed a mob. Oh, you want to take part of our church away? And this is how we'll retaliate. Wicked means worthless. Okay, that's how it's translated right there. And Rabble is a reference to a disorganized and confused collection of things as in a pack of animals who just kind of roam around nomadically without any real point or purpose. Rabble can also be a reference to a guy who loafs around in the marketplace. (laughs) I don't write this stuff. A loafer. Right? Not the kind that I put on at night when I walk around the house and go outside and take the trash out. A loafer, someone who just just doesn't do much of anything, but just kind of loafs. Right? Loafs around the marketplace, maybe looking for a handout. Not a productive person. Not a person that's particularly interested in what's happening around. They just kind of loaf. They're aloof. An aloof loafer. This phrase is linked to Joshua 9.4 where Gideon's manipulative son Abimelech went to Shechem to establish a throne for himself. I think I should be king. While there he took 70 pieces of silver and paid worthless and reckless fellows rabble to follow him. Like buying votes. Number two, they set, they took this group and they set the city in an uproar. Uh, This uh, was similar to what the syndicate created in the marketplace at Philippi. Remember the syndicate that owned the little slave girl that Paul released of that demon and they exploded because they were going to lose money and they generated a small riot in the agora, if you will. But this in Thessalonica was uh, on a much larger scale. The city of Thessalonica basically went into an uproar, not just a, a strip mall. Three, they attacked the house of Jason, Jason and the Argonauts. Just making sure you're paying attention, Bruce. He smiled, so I think he believed me. They attacked the house of Jason. Jason was not an Argonaut. He was was one of the people that became persuaded at the synagogue. He was one of the people that got converted through Paul's uh, preaching. He was a new follower of Jesus who sided with Paul and Silas. Jason may have been Jewish since the name Jason was often taken by, uh, I think they call it diaspora, diaspora Jews, those Jews who were scattered. That name Jason was often taken by them. And Paul also called him a kinsman, referring to Jewish, uh, as a Jewish kinsman in Romans 16, 21. So this guy was more than likely Jewish and converted. Now why did the Jews and mob attack Jason's house? Why go after Jason? Because they heard that Jason showed the missionaries hospitality by inviting them to stay at his house. They figured out, well, that's where Paul and Silas, these guys have created all this trouble. They're staying over with Jason, so that's, that's where we'll go. They didn't just go there. They attacked the house of Jason, it says. Number four, they sought to bring them out to the crowd. The Jews not only attacked Jason's house, but they entered and searched it so they could bring the missionaries out to the crowd. This is a pretty serious situation that's playing out here. Now let's look at 6 through 8. 
And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They go back a little bit. They searched the house, but they could not find Paul and Silas. They were either not there or very well hidden. The Jews, however, settled for Jason and some of the brothers. We can't find the big time culprits. We'll take these other guys. They dragged them through the town to the marketplace or to some other location where uh, these you know, magistrates were, or city officials, if you will, and they put them before them. They began to shout a threefold indictment against them. I'm quoting from the NLT. It's a little easier to, to catch here. Indictment one, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, and now they are here disturbing our city too. Part of their argument, their indictment. Indictment two, Jason has welcomed them into his house. What is Jason? He's an accomplice. This guy that I have with you, he's part of the problem. We couldn't find those two bozos that are turning the world and our town upside down. Actually, it was these guys who were standing there turning it upside down. But we found their, the next of kin. We found those supporters of them. Indictment three, they are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Threefold indictment. Now, this third indictment, guilty of treason, was easily the most serious of all the indictments. MacArthur wrote, to acknowledge any other king but Caesar was one of the most serious crimes in, Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire. It was for allegedly claiming to be a rival earthly ruler to Caesar that the Romans crucified Jesus. Failure to worship Caesar surely led to Paul's execution a little later. So this was a very, very serious threefold indictment, especially that third one. The three indictments together produced fear in those who were listening. The people in the city authorities became disturbed, it says, to become beside them, themselves in a sense. Look at verses 9 to 10a. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, this is just a fascinating verse here. This verse tripped me up so bad. I just, did, I just could not figure out this 9 through 10a for the life of me, and then God revealed it to me, and, and I figured it out. But listen to this. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then it says in 10a, that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. Or Berea. Jason and the brothers were forced to pay a bond. If the missionaries left Thessalonica, Jason and the brothers would get their bond money back. There was no imprisonment or anything that took place here. It was like, look, you've been aiding and abetting them. You're going to pay us 10 grand, and they better leave. If they don't, we're keeping your money, and you're going to suffer additional consequences. That's the deal that these magistrates or authorities, if you will, struck with Jason, not as if Jason could say, well, I'm not interested in doing that. If Paul and Silas remained, they would lose the bond money and face those penalties. Paul didn't want them to lose their money or to get into more trouble, so he opted to go. Now, Paul was ferociously bold, but he also really, really cared about the brethren, and he knew that if he stayed, it would create massive trouble for that new church particularly Jason and those brothers, their money would be taken. That's not cool. And other things would come. After the uproar and the bond was paid, the believers held up their end of the deal and sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Now this broke Paul's heart. This whole instance here and the way this played out broke his heart. Being forced to leave or his new friends and disciples being forced to, you know, lose their money. And I would imagine these authorities probably tried to clear their bank accounts out and give an obscene amount. They probably had to raise the money. But this broke Paul's heart. He was saddened that he had to leave this church under these circumstances. 
He wanted to stay and teach them and train them to obey all that Christ commanded. He wanted to personally watch them grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to get back into Paul's shoes. We need to understand something here. He didn't travel from city to city, proclaim the gospel, and leave in a day. He was a church planter. And so when he went into a city, if he was able to, he would stay and plant the church and get elders appointed and train everyone and do these things. And here his heart was broken because he was not able at this point to do these things. It anguished him greatly when he was forced to leave. And he recorded his lament in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 18. He said this to these beloved. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. We get the idea here that what Paul is writing is not only did he lament over what happened immediately in Thessalonica and them being exited out of the city under force and the loss of money and these things, but they made other attempts apparently to come, and they could not. And he says, it was the work of the devil. I believe it was. Closing thoughts. I'd like to quickly, well, quickly whatever, revisit some of our, some of the themes that we've seen here. I'll identify some of the themes and then we'll see how we might be able to apply them live them out you ready you've been ready haven't you not messing around first thing Paul traveled to Thessalonica it's the first thing we read about every Christian is a missionary every Christian where is God sending you? Well, I'm thinking about going to Africa. Hey, that's fine. But don't wait to go to Africa someday because you're a missionary now. I'll tell you where God is sending you, right where you live, right where you work, right where you attend school, right where you socialize with people, right where you go for entertainment, right where you buy your clothes, right where you do these things. You're a missionary right where you're at. We talked about this last week. Paul went to Thessalonica and Philippi. And we know he was a traveling missionary. And some of you may very well be called to that. Praise God. But we're all missionaries nonetheless. How are you being missional? Right where you live. Right where you breathe. Right where you earn a paycheck. Right where you attend school. How? You just ponder that. See, Matthew 28 isn't just for Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and these others and Peter and these others. Matthew 28 is for all of us, the whole church. We're at all to be missionaries. Secondly, Paul reasoned from the scriptures. I love that. You see, there's a difference in reasoning from the scripture and just straight up preaching the scripture. There's a difference between them. Actually, reasoning from the scriptures, I believe, is one of the best ways to preach the gospel. One of the best ways to proclaim the gospel. Open a text and present Jesus from that text. And you know what the miracle of the Bible is? You can in every text. Doesn't matter where you're at. What about those genealogies? Yeah. You can get to Jesus from there. What about Song of Songs? You can get to Jesus from there. What about some of those Psalms? What about some of those Proverbs, man? You can get to Jesus. Every, every, every verse is a thoroughfare to Jesus Christ. I don't mind if you quote that. That's actually pretty good. I don't know where that came. That's the Holy Spirit. I didn't just create that. 
you, you hear me? You can open the scripture and read. What is a typical way that we would share the gospel with others? Well, he, he came and he lived and he died and all these things. Yeah, that's fine. That's the gospel. But you can also open the scripture and you can reason with people. You can say, you understand we're all sinners and you can build a case for that just simply by reasoning from the scriptures. Reason is not an inherently bad thing. It's not a terrible thing. It's not a wicked thing. Use your knowledge of scripture the Holy Spirit that lives in you to reason from the scriptures. Look, you see, let me, let me help you understand this here. Now look at this situation that's playing out here. I was reasoning with my two young sons in their room the other day. We do a little Bible study. We're going through Genesis and I was reasoning to them how Christ is a sort of Noah's Ark. Shelter and security and these things and redemption was in the ark. If you weren't in the ark, you died. If you were not in Christ, you die. Reason from the scriptures. That's what Paul did. That's a fantastic way to spread the gospel. It is. It's a powerful way to do it. It's not wrong to do that. Now, I tend to be just one of those prophetic preaching types of guys. But I want to learn better to reason from the scriptures and to point to Christ and that person that's listening, their dire need for Jesus Christ. Paul did this when the Holy Spirit attends the word, even during that reasoning, and he applies his power. Amazing things happen. People get saved. People become persuaded. Lives change. Behaviors change. Amen. Three, the Thessalonians became exemplary believers. Quite an example they have set, right? You heard the seven things. Are you an exemplary believer? Am I an exemplary believer? Well, let's just go back and revisit the things that showed that they were exemplary. If you suffer affliction because of the gospel, if you turn to God, and I would say on a daily basis, because idolatry just has this fancy way of sneaking right back in. If you are in the constant business of going away from the idols of life and of the flesh and of comfort, and you're turning to God. If you are a servant of God, if you serve the brethren, if you serve others, if you love your neighbors and do things for your neighbors, you do these things for Christ, you love the church and care for the church, provide for the church, you do these things for others. If you are known for your good works and steadfast hope, if you spread the gospel, if you are an example to other believers, if your faith is known, if you are known as a person of faith in your workplaces, in your home, in your neighborhood, wherever you go, if you are any of these things, especially together, guess what? You are an exemplary believer. You're living out the Christian faith the way that God desires. And you are pleasing him. And you are glorifying him. And I'll tell you what. It may not seem like it, but you're making a difference right where you're at. Guaranteed. Now you just think about those, that criteria, if you will, where you lax. And why would we even want to be, and I think that's a big problem in the church. I don't think Christians want to be exemplary believers. I think they just want to have Jesus and have their life. That's not Christianity, friends. That's American, Americanity. And that goes to hell. That doesn't deliver, man. You know, there is such thing as American religion. It takes on the form of a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Buddhism, quite a bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Islam. It's just a, 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 a happy, universal blend of all things, ultimately earning your way. Well, that's not what we've been called to. What area are you not exemplifying? For the Jews became jealous and enraged when the source of their security was removed. And I think they had other reasons too. It wasn't just a security issue. They hated Jesus. But there was a security component to it, I guarantee it. There was a threat. 
And I ask you, and I say this to myself, every day I have to preach the gospel to myself, where does my, where does your security come from? Who or what are you clinging to? If we say to ourselves, I couldn't live without this or that or that person, whatever, that's where security's coming from. And guess what? We're also idolaters. Jesus should be the only possession we cannot live without. Period. Period. Capital period. Exclamation point. He should be the only possession that you cannot live without. And that doesn't mean that you don't mourn over the losses of your beloved loved ones and when, and when you know, things come and things are taken and stuff because of the economy and all these things. It's, it's okay. We're stewards of things. It's okay to mourn over the loss of people and all that because you're weeping over the loss of someone doesn't make you an idolater. It shows that you're not a sociopath. But how many people in this day and age say, I cannot go on without Jim? He's a person. You can't go on? Well, if I don't drive a Bentley. I don't think I've ever seen one in town, to be honest with you. It's Modesto for crying out loud. Go over the hill over there and everyone's got one. I can't go on. I can't function. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't when that is taken or that person is taken. You're building on the wrong person. Jesus is the only possession that you should not, as a believer, be able to live without. And you mourn when there's a time for mourning and you weep because there's a time, time for weeping. Nothing wrong with that. And know this. God sometimes takes people and takes things to test us. He knows the outcome, but he does it so that we will reveal where our true heart is. I used to make these little promises to myself. I'll never love my kids in such a way to where it's out of balance. And that I've exalted it up because I don't want to be tested. Don't take my children. You ever thought about that? Don't let the blessings go beyond the blesser. Don't hold your children to that level and say to yourself, I can't go on without them. Because by golly, we have a God who tests. Take your son up on the mountaintop and then burn him as a sacrifice. <gasps> oh. Lastly, five, Paul had an intense longing to see the Thessalonians again. And that comes from, oh, First Thessalonians chapter 2. It's paralleled right into our text, though. He was made to leave. And he had such an intense longing to come back, to be with them. He felt like he had been stripped from them. Do we have an intense longing to see one another each week? Do we love each other so much that we can't wait be together and some of us love the singing and 
and we like the word and we like the reading of the word and the teaching of the word and all these things and these are these are great things we have an intense longing to come to church to sing and to hear the word preached and all these things that's just fine and dandy but do we also feel the same way about the fellowship I can't wait to see Sue I can't wait to see Paul my brother God doesn't want us to have a smoldering kind of longing and love for one another. It's of no value. He wants us to have a holy, white, hot longing and love for one another. Notice how I said holy. May we together be of one accord in this. We would say together, Father, fan into flame a holy, white, hot longing and love between your people at RHC. That we would love each other that much, longing to see one another. That maybe when we would show up on Sunday or in our home group or wherever, that maybe our heart would flutter a little bit at the sight of our beloved brothers and sisters. There's nothing wrong with that. We should love each other like that. Jesus actually hung something really cool on that. It's that love that makes it known to the world that we are his disciples. And the fervency and the longing in these things will be displayed in a handful of things. Your attendance, if you're rarely here, you're probably showing that you don't long to be with your brothers and sisters. And you know what? I think is equally disturbing to that because we should never forsake the assembly. I get it. Sometimes you got these work seasons and things like that. Sometimes we miss for no legitimate reason. But another thing that's equally scary to just missing out and not longing in that sense is the attitude that we display, our disposition when we're here. I just want to get in and out. I just want to go get my little, my little nugget of food, my little chicken nugget sermon, my little thing, get, get my meal on, sing my praise, be Jesus, 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 and I got to get out of here. You know, you come late so you can avoid the fellowship and you leave real quick after church so you can avoid the fellowship. How is that a longing? And, you know, I really, really love this body because we really do seem to love each other and to come and to spend time with you. We can't get you out of the building. My wife's like, can we go? I said, not till they're done. It's 5 o'clock, Phil. We probably should get out of here. Now, these are some things to ponder and think through. We'll have our time of communion. It is for believers only. Those who have given their hearts to Christ. And it is also for those who confess in terms of a believer. Believers confession only. You don't take communion week in and week out where you're living in sin. You need to confess your sin before you take the elements. You don't want to fall under the discipline of God. Now, I preach these sermons, and I know every one of them challenges me, and I sit back there, and I'm so hesitant to take anything because I have to, I have to allow the Holy Spirit to analyze my heart because I'm a culprit in these things, as you might be. Some of you are. It's for believers only, and you need to repent and confess sin before you take the elements and then you need to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. Those elements, what they represent, his broken body is shed blood for the remission of your sin. All your sins, past, present, future. It's not a license for more sin. It's freedom from sin. Okay? And so you confess and, and you remember. And then guess what? Part of the supper is the refreshing refreshment of God's grace in your heart to start new now to be refreshed and I would say this lastly commit your ways to the ways of the Lord to obeying his law David said there's no higher honor or thing that I could do he was a man that was filled with faith he delighted in the precepts of God because he knows they please the father 
Father, as we enter into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that we would uh, be reminded of our sin, that we, you would search our hearts and display those things before us, that we would confess of those things. And, and confessing is one thing, it's to say what's going on. Repentance is actually turn from those things. We've heard things in this sermon today that might, our lives might not line up. May we, may we turn from our disobedience and obey you. May we f- remember the finished work of Christ. We've been purchased. There's nothing that we can do to, to change that. We can't add to it. We can't subtract from it. It's finished. It's complete. And it's perfect. Refresh us in your grace, O oh Father. Pour that fountain of grace upon our hearts. May we be renewed with great vigor to walk in holiness and righteousness. Obeying your word. Loving one another. Thank you for this time and what those elements represent. Our freedom. We are a freed people. We are not slaves under sin any longer. Under the devil, we are victors. May we remember that and celebrate in this time. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Help yourself.